The only way that you can say all is well with your soul is if you know Christ. And the only way that you can know Christ is if God reveals Christ to you. But as Paul said, someone must go out and they must share the gospel message. They must hear the news. How will they, how will they put their faith in someone they do not know? How can they know unless they hear? And how can they hear unless someone preaches the gospel to them? We had a chance to look at the mission that we are all called to be evangelists. We are all called to be missionaries. We had a chance to look last week at the message we're called to take out to our mission field. And that is, the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe the good news. We looked at some of the false messages, but we looked at the real message that Christ himself went out with. And then he sends his disciples and believers out with as well. And that includes us. And this morning, I would like us to turn our attention to... Philippians chapter 1, all you preached on this a while ago, I'm not pulling from an old sermon, um, but there are many aspects of a text that lend itself to uh, different teachings, and this would be one, where we're going to look at this morning the problem that we have in sharing the gospel of grace. And it's not, it's not really, most people know that we're supposed to, right? I mean, even non-believers know that believers are supposed to engage in missionary work to, to share the gospel. So most people know that inside and outside the church. And most people raised in the church know what the real gospel message is most. The problem is not knowledge, it's not understanding, it's desire. I mean, fundamentally, we don't share the gospel because we don't want to share the gospel. We don't bring the message of Christ to our mission field because we don't want to. Now, you may be saying, well, I do want to. I just, I struggle with so many things. I understand that. But we will see that if we really desire what is in their best interest, we too will be evangelists and missionary workers as well. This morning, I'd like to look at three things in regards to the motivation to share the gospel of grace. Number one, the wrong motives. Number two, the right motives. And number three, the motivation changer. The wrong motives for sharing the gospel, the right motives for sharing the gospel, and the change, the one who will change your heart and give you the right motivation to engage the lost. So first let's look, Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, the wrong motives. Paul identifies here, if you were listening, Paul identifies two groups of people, both sharing the gospel, one for good reasons, one for reasons not so good. Look with me again. Paul writes, he says, it's true that some preach out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Paul is rejoicing over the fact that Jesus Christ, for good motives or for bad motives, is being preached and the gospel is going out. Now, just because Paul says, I rejoice, doesn't mean that it's right to share the gospel for wrong motives. Don't say, oh, well, good, my motives are bad, therefore it's okay. That's not the right conclusion here. False motives, envy, rivalry... Selfish ambition. I mean, some of the words here are so condemning. And yet, it's some of the same things that we do as individual believers and churches in why we share the gospel. And I also believe it's one of the reasons that we get so frustrated when we hear messages on evangelism. Because it means that we go back out with the wrong motives that don't last. It ultimately fails and we give it all up. We say, oh, I've tried that. I've tried to share it with people and they don't listen. And what we don't examine is our own hearts and why we're actually sharing it. 
Paul reveals something here. He says, when he's, so he's in Rome, he's in chains, and he's saying some are preaching Christ because they are rivals and they are envious. In other words, they're competing with the Apostle Paul. Why? Because they don't like the gathering that he has. They don't like the popularity that he has accumulated. Of course, Paul's saying, it's not me, it's Christ, but they don't like what they're seeing. And so out of rivalry and envy, they share the gospel of grace. Now, you say, well, how does that apply to us today? Many ways. In fact, we see entire church movements that are based upon rivalry and envy rather than a desire for people to truly hear Christ and turn and be saved. Entire campaigns driven by churches. And please don't think, oh, these are the churches that are not within the pale of orthodoxy. Entire church campaigns designed to get people into the seats. That's a very different thing than sharing the gospel of grace. It's one thing to fill a church. It's another thing to take the message to the lost. Now, sometimes the two go hand in hand, and sometimes they don't. To not forsake the gathering of the saints, you say, well, aren't we supposed to gather? Yes. But if rivalry and envy fuels our evangelism campaign, if it's, the desire is to bring glory to ourselves, if it's out of selfish ambition, as Paul says, or for false motives, then what we're doing is we're, we're trying to, to make something, God's church, bigger, better. Right? And so our movement here, and we see this in our own culture, the, the bigger the church, the better the church. The more people that attend the church, the better that church is. In verse 17 and 18, Paul says, Those who engage the loss like this are insincere, their motives are false, and their ambitions are selfish. They go out for the pure desire of bringing people in to lift themselves up. Entire evangelism campaigns to have a, a max church Easter Sunday. Let's get them in. Just get them in. Let's pack them on Christmas Day. And then the evaluation is, we had 500 people here. It must have been a successful campaign. Maybe, maybe not. Was Christ crucified preached? Was there a call to repent and believe? Did, or did they come in for the right reasons? Are the motives pure? Is it based upon our love for God and our love for fallen man? Or is it to elevate ourselves? Is it truly selfish ambition? Self-glorification? Are we treating people like cattle, trying to herd them into one location, saying, look how good we are? Are we treating people like a, an item on a store shelf to be purchased and consumed? Or are we approaching the lost as Christ approached the lost, with the right motives? Now, I'm guilty here on two fronts. When I first came to a saving grace in Christ, I was the only one amongst my friends. I was at UC Davis studying in my undergraduate studies, and God saved me by his grace, and all of my friends, without exception, were non-believers. And so I shared the gospel with them. And part of me wanted them to come to a saving grace, and part of me wanted them to believe what I believed. Why? Because there's this real strange security in numbers. You know, if I could just get a few of my friends to believe what I believe, then, they, then all my friends wouldn't think that I'm so weird and out of touch. And then I could be accepted. And then it'd be okay. I just need a few. I need a lot, but just a handful. And so I would share the gospel with them, wanting them to come to a saving grace to make me feel better. False motive. Insincere. Part of me also wanted them to, to agree with me because I wanted to be right, right. And pride hates being wrong. And so it was selfish ambition. I wanted them to say yes to Christ so that I could say, I'm right in my position. Wicked. 
wicked. But I failed on an even greater level as a pastor. When I first came to a saving grace in Christ, there were also selfish motives in getting people to come to a saving grace, getting church members to share the gospel to bring them into the church. And here's why. I wasn't raised in the church, came to a saving grace at 20. But early in my time serving as a pastor, I would meet with other pastors and I would get the single salient question again and again and again. And every pastor, almost without exception, would say, how many people are in your church? At first, I would naively answer. And then I realized, why they're asking me this question? They weren't really curious as to how many people were in my church. They were sizing me up, right? They're saying, well, we've got, I've got 500 in mine. You have 50 in yours. I am obviously a better pastor. Right, no, so this is, this is still today, and I know it was 10 years ago, still today, the standard litmus test for a successful church. How many people? You got a few, not so successful. You got a lot, successful. From a pastoral standpoint. And I'd love to tell you that it didn't impact me, but it, I bought into it. And my thought was, oh, okay, a, a small church, unsuccessful pastor, what do I need to do? I need to get more people into the seats. And so my first teaching on evangelism was commingled with false motives. I was sharing the gospel with people. I was encouraging the members here to share the gospel with people. But it was so that they could come in. Why? To increase the numbers. Why? Because then I'm a more successful pastor. Selfish ambition. Out of rivalry and envy. I mean, it was straight from Philippians chapter 1. I was envious of those pastors who had bigger churches. And then I wanted us to compete with them. To be rivals. It's the church. We're not supposed to be competing with each other. It's the church, right? I mean, it's wicked, it's wrong, it's skewed, and yet we do it quite often. The psalmist said in Psalm 44, 21, would God, would God not discover this since he knows the secrets of our heart? As if God doesn't know when our motives are not pure. Go, share the gospel with your friends, and then bring them to church. Not, it doesn't matter if they're saved, just get them here, just get them here, just get them here. Christ doesn't operate like that. In fact, we don't see Christ trying to get people to go to synagogue. I mean, do you? Do you see Christ trying to pack the churches? Having high attendance Sunday? You know? High synagogue Saturday? He doesn't do that at all. He doesn't. He goes out and he shares the gospel. He preaches the truth. Some stay, some go. So, there are so many... And I don't want to spend too much... There are so many wrong motives for us sharing the gospel. The Bible gives us pure motives. Right motives. If we try to share the gospel for, out of rivalry or envy or selfish ambition or insincere motives, then what will happen? You'll get frustrated quickly. It won't last very long, and you'll just stop. Paul says there's a better reason. Look again back at the passage. He said, it's true, verse, one, verse 15, it's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill, the latter do so in love. Goodwill and love. You say, well... This is not complicated. It's not theologically. And yet, it's not the primary means by which we share the gospel of grace. And it's the, one of the primary reasons we don't share the gospel of grace because we're not motivated by love and goodwill. A love for God and a love for man. In, in Matthew chapter 22, and I had Eric read this because it directs us to the foundation for our sharing the gospel. In Matthew chapter 22, after Jesus silences the, the Sadducees regarding marriage and the resurrection... He, he says this. A Pharisee got together and they asked him. They were testing him, trying to trick him. Verse 35, he says, One of them, 
This is the Pharisee, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. He said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. And you say, all right, pastor, you just deviated. I thought we were talking about evangelism. All the law and all the prophets hang on these two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, and then do as I do. Why? Our motivation for being faithful to our marriage covenant... Our motivation for not lying or stealing or coveting. Our motivation for desiring to gather together and not forsake the gathering. Our desire to go out and minister to people is born on, hangs on these two commandments. Our love for God and our love for fallen man. And if we deviate from this, so let's go back. Why is it so difficult? Why is it so difficult for us to share the gospel message? We always say, well, I don't, I don't know how they're going to react. I really don't know what to say. It's really a love problem. I mean, fundamentally, it's a misplaced love problem. Who is it that you love most? What is it that you desire most? The call to go out and be harvest workers is hanging on these two commands as well. It's a command, right? To go to be... Uh, uh, an evangelist, to make disciples of many nations, to engage in the Great Commission, to be a harvest worker. It's a command. That command, too, is hanging upon your love for God and your love for those created in His image. It hangs on those. And so the motivation we see, the compelling reason to be evangelist, starts here. It starts here in love. Let's take a look at first our love for God. How will your love for God compel you to go out and share the gospel properly? How? I mean, how does that work? How is it that loving God with all of who you are will turn you into a missionary? Two ways. There are multiple. I'm just going to give you two first. When you love God, when you love someone deeply, you will desire to please them. If we love God, we'll want to please God. When you love people in your life, I mean, love them deeply. You want to please them. Bring pleasure to them. Valentine's Day was recently. My wife and I, I'm sad to tell you, we're not big Valentine's Day people. We don't generally celebrate Valentine's Day. And it's, don't give me that face. You guys are going, it's not that we don't, I do, I bring her flowers, I bring her gifts. I just try not to buy into the Hallmark part of the holiday, because flowers are a lot more expensive in the few days before, right? You ever notice that? So you either buy them right after, or two weeks before, and you say, this is your Valentine's Day, honey, all right? This last Valentine's Day, Joshua came to me, and he said, what are you going to get for mom? He's my little romantic, Joshua is a romantic. He said, what are you going to get for mom on Valentine's Day? And I'm like, uh, nothing. Uh, I wasn't thinking about anything. And he said, there's this necklace that she showed me that she, she loves, she really likes. I'm like, okay, well, let's go take a look. So he took me to the store, and we looked at the necklace. I'm like, cool, let's get it. And so I went and told the other two boys, I said, listen, your mom, there's this necklace. Why don't we do this? Why don't we all chip in? We'll all make our own cards, and we'll surprise her on Valentine's Day. Okay. So they're like, yeah, that's great. So we all make our own cards, and we got the necklace, and we wrapped it up. And then dinner that night, we're sitting around the table, and we're enjoying dinner. And she had gotten us all a little gift. This was, it was great. I mean, it was it was great. She got us a little gift, and we're like, oh, we're so sorry. We didn't get you anything. <laughs> right? You know, and they're laughing. It was great. And so we wait till dinner's over, and then I sent the kids up, and I said, go get it. And so Josh, he runs up, and he, and he brings her the necklace. 
right? And so she opens the card. She gets the necklace. She is both shocked because it was Valentine's Day, and she gets the present, and she was pleased. Why was she pleased? Because it was something that she wanted, right? Shocked and pleased. And I looked around the table, and all three boys are like this. I mean, they got that. We got her, Dad. We got her good, right? Why were they so happy? Why were they filled with joy? Because they were enjoying their mother's pleasure. Why were they enjoying their mother's pleasure? Because they love her. Simple. They were enjoying. They wanted to please her. Those whom we love deeply, we want to please. If you say you love God, you'll want to please him. You say, well, what does that have to do with evangelism and sharing the gospel with the lost? God is pleased when we engage in harvest work. It brings him great pleasure when we go to those people in our mission field and we share with them the message of Christ. In fact, Paul writes in Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, just listen to this. Paul's telling Timothy, he says, I urge you then, first of all, that requests and prayers and intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. And he says, this is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Pleasing God. The commandment to go and become a harvest worker hangs upon this command. But there's something else here not, that will compel us. And it's not just pleasing God. Something else happens when you love God with all of who you are. His desires will become your desires. He will actually give you his desires. And so that you will desire that which he himself desires, which is for people to hear the gospel of grace, for people to be saved. I'm going to use my wife again, if you don't mind. I've been married now for 21 years. There were lots of funny examples I could give on this where my desires become hers or hers mine. Um, some are hysterical. But there's one that's good. There's several, but I wanted to share one with you that's good. My wife, if you do not know her well, she has always had a deep love for the elderly, for seniors, always. I first saw it with her grandparents, and I saw this love. Um, my grandparents died when I was young, almost all of them. I didn't, you know, we didn't get a chance to spend a lot of time with them. And so to see her engage her grandparents was just extraordinary to me. But then I saw her love other seniors and not just her grandparents in this way. About four weeks ago, she and I were at the hospital visiting Sylvia, who just uh, died recently, is now with Christ. Um, and we were there visiting her and talking to her. And I was watching my wife, and my wife grabbed her face and was kissing her face. And I was just in awe. I mean, she, she has her face and she's kissing her like she was one of her own children. And it, it was one of those moments where you're like, ah, oh, this was a gift from God to Lori, a desire for this particular individual. And in 21 years, I am pleased to say that God's grown that desire in my heart as well. So he is giving me a love for seniors as well. And a lot of that's been a product of my wife's love for them. God's desires through Lori become my desires as well. And so this happens. Our desires, the, the desires you have, if you love someone, they rub off on you. And, you. and with God, you want that, right? I mean, we want God's desires to come into us and become our desires, to become our ultimate desires as well, because his desires are always good. The psalmist said, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. He will give them to you. We selfishly turn that around and we think, oh, he'll give me my desires. He's saying, no, I'm going to give you my desires. 
God's going to give them to us. We love him first, and it changes things. So how, how does God desire for us to be faithful messengers? I mean, how much did God desire people to come to a saving grace in his son? How much? How much does he desire this? To an extreme. How do we know that? What did he do? He sent Christ. He sent his son. You say, to do what? So that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. I know that verse. Why? Because of his love. So his desire was so extreme for the lost that he went to the most extreme measures to save the lost. Sending his son to live, to die, to be crucified, and then experiencing hell. And he did this so that we might live, that we might become his children, that we might be redeemed, that we might, he might undo that which was destroyed. Your love for God will change your desires for your family members who do not know Christ. Your love for God will change your desires for those who you work with, for your neighbors, for your friends, for all those in your mission field. It'll change. The more you love God, the more you will not be okay with their lostness. The more you love God through Jesus Christ, the more you'll say, I cannot, it's not okay for them not to hear the message. It's not okay for them to go to hell. It's not okay. And that'll be a direct result of your increased love and desire for your creator. But there's a second part of this command. Paul says, look again, he says, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy, right? But others, out of goodwill, the latter do so out of love. So not only will it be your love for God, but it'll be your desire for the goodwill of man. What is that? What do we mean, goodwill of man? Paul, uh, Jesus emphasized this again in Matthew 22. All the law and the prophets hang on these. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Sincerely, purely, love your neighbor as yourself. And that... That means that you don't look at people as expendable. Your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers are not people that you relate to just to get something out of, to use for information or comfort or security. They are real people with real names, with a real past and a real future. And that real future, as we talked about two weeks ago, is either heaven or it's hell, and that's real. Remember we said in 2012, all those people on our mission field would be one of two states, heaven or hell. When we love our neighbor as we ourselves would want to be loved, then we see them differently as eternal beings. I had the great blessing of teaching for 11 years at De Anza Community College. And I was a teacher, but I was also a harvest worker. And my students were students, but they didn't know it. They were fruit in the harvest field. And so I would go to work, not just to teach political science and economics, I would go to work and I would go as a harvest worker. And I would look upon my students, not just as young people with gray matter growing and trying to make their way through the collegiate path, but I would look at them as souls, as individuals who have not heard the gospel of grace. And I would pray, and I prayed fervently for God. I said, make this mission field fruitful. And he did for 11 years. For 11 years... I had hundreds of dialogues, conversations with students, probably illegally a lot of the times, but so goes it, right? In my office, sharing the gospel of grace. Talking about Christ. Just sharing the gospel of people. In fact, one, one particular month was so strangely quiet. I asked, God, I asked the Lord of the harvest, I said, well, what's going on? 
And I said, Lord, please, this next week, give me the opportunity, open the door so I can share the gospel. Every single day, Monday through Friday, I had a chance to share the gospel with at least one student. I mean, straight out, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent and believe. Not, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Straight gospel. On Thursday, it was toward the end of the day, I'm wrapping up like, nobody today, Lord, nobody today. And I'm five minutes from walking out of my office and I get this... Door opens up. This is a true story. You're going to say this is not. It's true. Door opens up. Student comes in. We, we had had two or three previous conversations. He sits down in this chair and he goes, all right, tell me about this Jesus thing. That's never happened since. I've never had someone beg me to tell them the gospel of grace. He says, tell me. And we spent an hour and I shared the gospel with him. The Lord of the harvest was going before and answering the prayers. Do you pray like that? Do you say, Lord, put these people in a position, bring them so I can share, open the door so I can share. Do we do that? Do we do that? Do we see people not as expendable, not as people that we can use to lift ourselves up and fill ourselves up, but as people with real past and real futures, real souls in an eternity of heaven or hell? And then do we share with them the gift You see, if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you have been given the greatest gift. The greatest gift. When when it talks about loving, loving others as you would love yourself. I mean, what greater love can you share with someone than the greatest love that you currently have in Christ? Knowing him and being known by him. I mean, loving the creator of the universe and being intimately and personally loved by the creator of the universe. What greater gift do you have? What more could you share? My brother, who used to pastor here, he's now pastoring over at Community Baptist, which is right down the road. He came to a saving grace about a year before I did. And it was not okay with him that I was not saved. It was not okay with him. And he gathered this entire church for a year and he said, pray for my brother's soul. And this church did. And then on two specific occasions that I remember distinctly, because I hated them, but I imagine he did it more than twice. I was home from break and we still had a room that we shared and I'm sitting on my bed and he's sitting in his bed and he closed the door and he says, we got to talk. And for an hour, he laid it out for me. Heaven, hell, sin, and I'm go- where I'm going. And I... I, the conversation, it ended poorly. I said things that were inappropriate to tell you what I said. And I slammed the door and I said, I never want to talk to you again. That's the general response, by the way. About three months later, he shows up at my dorm. I'm at Davis studying, knock on my door. Hey, Kurt, what are you doing here? Sit down. <laughs> again? Didn't we do this once already? Six months later, I came to Saving Grace in Christ. It was not okay with my brother for me not to know Christ. He was praying for me. He had people praying for me. And he was persistent in sharing the gospel. That's that's the type of love that compels us to share with people that we truly love. Because someone loved him like that. Someone said, listen, I know the greatest love. I know the ultimate gift and it's Christ. And here, you need to know too. There's so many things that we can give people, right? We can give them necklaces for Valentine's Day. We can give them flowers. We can give, there's so many things we can give people. But the greatest gift we have to share is Christ. And it's the gospel. So many churches today, so many outreach ministries that are geared at meeting physical needs. Food, shelter, money, counseling. 
Now, don't get off on the deep end. The Bible calls us to this as well, yes? But not, it's not our primary mission. Our primary mission is engaging in harvest work. It's meeting their ultimate needs. Yeah, we want to meet their physical needs too, but the ultimate need, what good does it do to, to fill someone's belly and give them an education and put clothes on their back and they still go to hell? What good is that? Then we make their time here a little bit nicer, but we don't talk about Christ, we don't talk about hell, we don't talk about sin, and we don't talk about the need to repent. The greatest gift One of the most fantastic dialogues that took place between Christ and the Samaritan woman at the well, John chapter 4. The Samaritan woman says to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered, listen, he said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. We're going to look more at this dialogue. It's fantastic in terms of sharing the gospel. But he says, listen, I got a gift I got a gift. And he shares it with her. In fact, she becomes an evangelist in her own community. And people come to a saving grace through the message she shares. But he shares the ultimate gift. The gospel of grace. Christ himself. Your motivation for God. Your motivation to share the gospel will be born out of your love for God. And your love for your neighbor. That's pure. Any other reason, envy, rivalry, selfish ambition, is a false motive. And that's why we don't do it. And we just don't do it. We, we identify fear, we identify um, lack of courage, but it's fundamentally a misplaced love. It's a misplaced love. We become abusive, we become manipulative, we try to trick people. We try to trick people into the church. You know, we're having a potluck, and the potlucks are really good. If you come to church, you can eat the food. What? I mean, really? We have raffles. I mean, the things that churches are doing today to get people into the chairs. I have to say, I was going to say pews, but not many pews. Into the, in the seats. But it's not the message of Christ. He didn't do that at all. In fact, he did something quite different. What is the motivation changer? How do we move from positions of fear and misplaced love to positions of power and authority in Christ? What will change us? Point number three. You'll always do, at every moment of any given day, what your heart desires most. The Bible teaches this, and it's a fundamental fact. Whatever you desire most, at any given moment, regardless of your circumstances, that you will do. Some people today, they woke up, and they looked at their clock, and they went, No, it's really 5 a.m. I'm not getting out of bed. And they didn't get out of bed. They kept sleeping. Why? Because they desire to sleep more. Students, I used to say this, if you desire to be a good student, well, you will. What does that mean? You'll study, you'll read, you'll actually do your homework. It's a strange thing. When we do our homework, we do better in school. Weird. Really weird, right? If you desire to be a good student, you will. You'll work. If you desire to follow Christ, you will. If you don't, you won't. At any given moment, in whatever we're doing, we do whatever our heart desires most. If in that moment we want to sin, we sin. If in that moment we want to pursue Christ, we will. Same holds true for sharing the gospel with those in our mission field. If you desire to please God out of your love for him, if you desire to share the gift that you have out of your love for your neighbor, then you will. And if you don't, you won't. You won't. You may say you do, and it may be a lower desire. We're not saying you don't desire it at all, but you don't desire it enough. 
it's lower than your desire for security or self-glorification or not to be looked at foolishly or not to be treated differently or people in a mature Christian and be outed. The problem most Americans face today when it comes to evangelizing, it's not knowledge, it's not the mission itself, it's misplaced love. It's a wrong order of love. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is going to send out the disciples on their first major evangelism campaign. He's going to send them out. And it's a great dialogue. And we might look at it again in greater detail in two weeks. But he sends them out on their first campaign. And listen to what he says. He injects this. And it's, it's one of those teachings you're thinking, this is not going to motivate people to share the gospel. Listen to what he says. This is before they go out. He says, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. (laughs) And then he says, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're trying to get people geared up to go share the gospel message, that's not what you're going to tell them. But that's the truth. Because Christ is saying, you want to go share, out, share the good news with the lost? It better be out of your love for me and out of your love for your fellow man, for their lostness, for the desire for their goodwill. It better be. Because if it's not, if you love anyone or anything more than you love me, you won't share it. You won't be faithful. You won't engage in harvest work. And we know this is true. If you love your mother or father more than you love Jesus, you won't talk about sin and you won't talk about hell because you'll want your relationship to be secure. Listen, parents, if you love your children, your older children, more than you love Christ, you won't talk to them about their eternal state. You won't share with them the destination they await if Christ is not their Lord and Savior. This applies to our friends, our co-workers our next-door neighbors, it applies to everybody. We must love God first. Because Jesus is saying clearly, my message, it's hard to hear. This is a hard-to-hear message. It will divide people, friends and families that used to get along will turn against each other. People that used to be your companions will become your enemies. My response to my brother the first two times, I, I did, I wanted to punch him in the face. I did. I couldn't stand what he was saying. How dare he tell me that heaven and hell are real? How dare he tell me I'm a sinner? How dare he tell me I'm going to hell? How dare he tell me that? Anger, hostility, division, brother against brother for a year. We were like this. It divides. When our Lord was teaching the masses in Capernaum in John chapter 6, he reveals... That he is the only way to the Father. He says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. And they all got what he was saying. They, he, they weren't thinking, oh, he's calling us to cannibalism. That, they got it. They got that he was saying, I am the one. I am the Messiah. I am the King. I am the way. That's it. And in verse 60, on hearing this, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And from this time on, many of his disciples turned and no longer followed him. Why? They couldn't bear it. 
the only way, the only truth, the only life, Christ. So narrow-minded, so exclusive. That's what I thought, so narrow-minded. I must have used that phrase a hundred times my brother. You're so narrow-minded. You're so narrow-minded. Really? The only way? You're so narrow-minded. Surprised he didn't punch me. He should have. Christ gives him this warning because he knows that even though the gospel message is filled with hope, it is burning to the ears of the sinner. We don't want to hear truth. We talked about that last week. We want to avoid truth and we run from truth. But the truth is we have fallen and we are completely fallen. And apart from grace in Christ, we will be completely lost. And that's the truth. And so he says, when you go out and you share that with people, your friends, your family, your coworkers, they're not going to like what they hear, at least not initially. And because you're the messenger, what will they do? They will try to kill you, right? They will not like you either. Is it any wonder that we switch the message to there are many paths? We say things like God loves you just as you are. We say things like your faith is equally true and right to everyone else's faith. We say things like it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe something. We say things like God is a loving God who would never judge. We lie to people. Why? Because we like to be liars? No. Because we want, to, we want them to still like us. We want to be accepted. Because we love them more than we love God. And in reality, we don't love them at all. Because if we truly love them, we'd love them right to the cross. And we'd share the gospel. Tickling ears may please the masses, but God hates it. He hates it when we tickle ears. So how do we faithful share a message that's so difficult to hear that will cause division? How did, these, how did the disciples go out after Jesus says, listen, your mother's going to be against you, your father's going to be against you, you're not going to... How do we do this? Did they just have more courage than us? Were they just braver than us? Was it because they were in the presence of Christ? Of course not. Their greatest love was God. Their greatest love was God. And because they loved God first, and they had a right love for man, they loved people properly. If you love God first, over your mother and father and child and work and school and hobbies, then you will love them right to the cross. You will love them by sharing the gospel of grace with them. You will not be satisfied with their lostness. You won't be okay with their eternal destination. You won't say, well, that's your faith and it's equally valid. You won't be okay with that. You'll commit it to prayer. You'll petition the Lord of the harvest to go before you and to convict their hearts and minds of their sin and to turn them from the way of darkness. Your love for God and your love for your neighbor is the right compelling reason to go out. And it will move you. And so the question is, how do I cultivate this? How do I have this move me every single day so that I go out in the harvest and I gauge in the work? How do I have this message that the time has come, repent and believed? The answer that I didn't get for a long time to loving God first and therefore having a right love for the lost is that the gospel is not just for the lost. And I foolishly thought that. Here's the message for people that don't know Christ. And the Bible says, here's the message for all people, saved and unsaved. Right? 
So what we must do to, to have a right love for God and a right love for our neighbors is that we must take the gospel that we so desperately say we want to share with the lost and we must daily press it into ourselves. What does that mean? That means every single day you say the kingdom of heaven is near. Therefore, I should not live in any other way than the kingdom of heaven is near. Every single day we are called to repent. For what? For the sins that we committed yesterday and today and will commit tomorrow. Every single day, we are called to believe in the good news, to believe in the person who brought the good news, in his saving work, that he did come, that he did live, that he did die, and that he did rise from the dead. Every day. Every day we're saying, I'm putting all my hope and all my trust in you, not my boss, not my marriage, and not the stock market. You, Christ. Every day we're saying, I will follow you. Not my financial counselor. Not my therapist. You, Christ. Every single day. And to the degree that you take the gospel and you share it with yourself and you preach to yourself and you say the kingdom of heaven is near and you repent and you believe and you follow Christ, it'll draw you into that love relationship and it will give you a right love for your neighbor and you will go out with the right motive. You will go out with a desire to share the gospel with the lost. You will obey the command. Christ said, If you love me, you'll obey what I command. You'll obey. Christ said, go. He said, make disciples of all nations. He said, go work in the harvest field. He didn't say it was optional. He didn't say, come, repent, believe, and then do whatever you want to do. He said, go. And you say, but I don't want to go. The problem is motivation. The problem is misplaced love. The degree that we cultivate our love for God daily will have a desire to share the gospel. And in fact, it won't even be painful. It won't be something where you go, I really want to, but I don't really want to. In Luke chapter 16, there is a, Jesus talks of Lazarus and the rich man. Most of you know the story well. Lazarus was a beggar who sat outside the rich man's gate just desiring to eat the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Well, the story goes that both die. The rich man goes to hell, and Lazarus is taken up into the bosom of Abraham into heaven. While the rich man is in hell, he cries out in Luke 16, verse 27. He says, I beg you, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. The rich man had, in hell, crystal clarity. He said, go and share with them the message so they don't end up here. Crystal clarity. The type of clarity that we need while we're still here on earth. The type of clarity that we need before we leave this place. This man's disaster changed his perspectives, but it was too late. By God's grace, 
when we come into worship, when we take the elements that represent the body and blood, when you go to God in prayer, when you seek out his face in the word, you are drawing yourself in to that same type of disaster so that you will see that you are broken and you are fallen and you too need to be saved. You bring yourself into that voluntarily. You see clearly now before it's too late. Not just for yourself, but for those whom we say we love. Last week, one of our seniors, Sylvia Hart, I can't even say that she died. She moved on. She, she moved on. I didn't know this woman well. I knew her for about a year. I spent some time with her in and out of the hospital. But I came to know her at her memorial service. I came to know things about her at her memorial service that were extraordinary. Her family and friends stood up, one after the other, and they testified to this woman's passion to share the gospel of grace. I was overwhelmed. It was the best memorial service I'd ever been to, hearing what they had to say. This woman, for 80 years, had crystal clarity on eternal destination of heaven and hell. And it was not okay with her that her family and friends and even the person she would meet on the street, and it wasn't uncommon for her to go up and say, do you know Christ? There was one particular uncle that she harassed and harassed and harassed and harassed. And he said, I hated it, I hated it, I hated it. And then he came to a saving grace and he loved her for it. How was she able to do that? He said, well, she was old. They get old with a lot of stuff, right? No. She had a right love for God that was first, which gave her a right love for her fellow man. She was an evangelist. She was a radical evangelist. She was as we are supposed to be with those people in our mission field as well. Let's not be like the rich man when it's too late to say go, because there will come a time when you cannot speak the gospel message. There'll come a time when, you are, when you're taken away. And by God's grace, it won't be hell, it'll be heaven. But even in heaven, you won't be able to testify. And how many people, once you're in heaven, will you say, go, send someone, send someone? How many? How many? How many of the names that you lifted up as you were praying? And you say, well, I've got plenty of time, I'm young. How do you know that? How do you know that you are not the fool where this night will be your last night? You say, well, I know Christ. I know where I'm going. I, I pray so. That's wonderful. But what about all the people around you? What about all those people you say you love? Do they know Christ? Have they heard the gospel message? And will you be okay with their lostness? I pray not. I pray that as we continue to contemplate these eternal truths, as we cultivate our love for God and we cultivate our love for our fellow man, that we will be faithful and bold in that love to engage in harvest work. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, send us out. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for those like Sylvia who got it while she was still here on earth. That she understood, Lord, that every single soul has an eternal destination. 
And all those who do not know Christ, their destination will be hell. She got it. She loved you first. And therefore, she loved her fellow men properly. And therefore, she shared the greatest gift that she had ever received, and that was your son, Jesus Christ. Give us a right love for you, God, so that we might have a right love for our neighbor, so that we too, we we can feed them and we can help educate them and we can put clothes in their back. But Lord, our primary mission is so that gospel will go out. I pray that we are not silent. I pray that we would go, even this week, to those people and tell them the kingdom of heaven is at hand and call them to repent and believe so they too will be saved. Give us this right desire, Lord, not out of envy or rivalry or selfish ambition, but a right desire out of our love for you and for their goodwill. I pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.